We'll be in Luke 10:38. Okay, last time we saw the parable of the Good Samaritan and all its implications on how we treat and feel about other people that are not like us. Today we're going to see a short snippet on Mary and Martha and how all of us can relate to one or both of them in some way. Also, we're going to see another popular portion of scripture outlining a prayer. It's been called the Our Father, it's been called the Lord's Prayer, it's been called the Disciples' Prayer. And pretty much all Christians are familiar, at least familiar with this prayer. So let's begin. 10.38. It says, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. It would appear that this is the same Mary and Martha of Bethany, and they have a brother named Lazarus. If you read uh, John chapters 11 and chapters 12, you'll be pretty much familiar with the three of them. So let's take a look at the character of each one of these women. Martha seems to be a, a take-charge type of person, possibly A-type personality. It appears that she may, this may have been her home and her siblings were living with her in the home. In John's Gospel, Martha is mentioned as the first person to greet Jesus. She's also a pragmatist. And when it came to the situation where her uh, brother, Lazarus, died, Jesus came to resurrect him. Not exactly knowing what Jesus was going to do, uh, Jesus said to them, roll the stone away, and you know he was going to call Lazarus out. And his, his sister Martha, her comment was, Lord, by this time there is a stench. It's been four days. So she's a realist. You know, it's, don't, don't roll that stone away. It's not going to be good. But again, she didn't realize the full implications of what Jesus was going to do. Martha appears not to cry in uh, John chapter 11. She seems to have control over her emotions. Now, back to Luke 10, where we're at. Here she invites Jesus into her home. Now, this may have been a bold move considering the societal customs between men and women of the day. She did it herself instead of having her brother Lazarus do it. Now, let's turn to Mary. Not a whole lot said of her here, except we see that she was more of the meek one. The only thing it basically says about Mary was that she sat at Jesus' feet. This was a posture of submission and humility. Now, in John's Gospel, going back to John's Gospel regarding the death of her brother Lazarus, Mary seems to be the weepy one. It's, it speaks about her crying and, and being pretty sad. And also, we know that she was one of two people in the scripture that anointed Jesus prior to his death. So we get a picture of who the two of them are through harmony of the scripture. Martha, I guess in a nutshell, you could say she was a leader. Mary, maybe more of a follower. In verse 40, it says that Martha was distracted. Now, it's good to serve the Lord, but in context of this story, these were negative distractions. This was a picture of Martha was overdoing it, possibly overkill. You see, not only was she distracted, but she was flitting around the house doing her, you know, serving, and you get the impression that she was quite ticked off about the situation. Furthermore, she wanted Jesus to use his authority to get her sister Mary off the floor 
and help her to serve. This is a picture of serving with the wrong heart. Sometimes people serve, but they're always looking around to see who else is serving or who's not serving. Is anybody else doing it? Am I the only one serving? If we serve, who are we serving? We're serving the Lord. And if we're truly serving the Lord, then it shouldn't matter what everyone else is doing. Martha says two interesting things here. Number one, do you not care, Lord? And the other one is, tell her to help me. You see a lot in what she says in those two phrases. The first is she made the erroneous assumption that the God of the universe didn't care about the intricacies of her problem. Do you not care, Lord? Remember who she's talking to. Uh, How often do we do that with God? God, I guess you don't care because, you know what, Lord? You can see the situation that's before me and you're not doing anything. We can say that in a lot of ways in our life. Even if we don't say it with our lips, we're saying it in our hearts. We have financial issues, we have relationship issues, we may be serving, and we still, we're getting attacked spiritually. There's things happening in our lives, and we're like, Lord, what are you doing? You know what? You you see that this is happening. I know you're there, but you're not doing anything about it. Remember, our ways aren't his ways. That's very clear. Oftentimes, when the situation is passed and the Lord works it out, we kind of get maybe a little bit ashamed that we were so critical of him in our thoughts, right? The second thing is, she says to Jesus, tell her to help me. Martha is now directing the God of the universe what to do because she knows better than him. What about us in our prayer life? Same thing. We pray and direct God what we want out of life and what we want out of our relationship with him. <laughs> They're like God-directed prayers. Okay, Lord, this is, this is the deal. You know, this is the itinerary, what I want you to do for me today, tomorrow. This is the person I want to marry. This is the job I want. Amen. <laughs> right? It's, it's, we, we, we don't really understand who we're dealing with. Now, if that becomes the situation, then what, is, what have we turned God into? The genie in the bottle. Take up the bottle. You rub the lamp. God comes out. Tell him what you want. Okay, go back in the bottle till the next time. And that's not who we're dealing with. That's not who God's character is. And it's really great that the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, comes right after this. And we can delve into what prayer and relationship with God is truly about. Verse 41. It says, And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus' response to Martha He looks into her soul, and what does he see? Not peace and tranquility, but trouble and worry. Mary, on the other hand, was absorbing the things of God. We need that foundation in sitting at his feet and getting grounded in his word prior to using it. A friend of mine, uh, we kind of got saved at the same time and made some pretty good blunders. You know, you get saved and you think you know it all. I'm saved now. And you, want it, you start telling people things. But his comment to me was, because we would kind of look back and see where the two of us kind of messed up in different situations, and he said, there should be a rule that when you get saved, you have to keep your mouth shut for a whole year <laughs> until you really start studying the Bible. Apparently, I'm not the only one who's, who has happened to. But you have this information now. You're, you have so much excitement, but you have no wisdom. There's a few key points here that I want to bring out. Number one, it's interesting to look at the good in both of these women, the balance. Because these women represent, in a sense, faith. Mary represents the faith. 
and works. Martha represents works. And it's important to see that faith comes before works, doesn't it? And from the way the story plays out, it shows that works, no matter how much, are insufficient and even a detriment if you don't have that faith and that growth in the Lord. The second thing is that sometimes activity can be a mask to deeper issues. She was troubled about many things. Medicated by activity kind of takes your mind off of stuff. You know, you see people, they do a lot of activity, and there's just something in their mind that they're just trying to get it out of the forefront. I see a lot of people today who, has deep, who have deep troubling issues. And again, it's like a stuffing mechanism. Somebody said that to me once. I don't know if that's a clinical term or what. But it's, it's almost like you have these things in your heart. You have these things in your life and they're troubling. And you just keep trying to push them down, push them down. Take them to a part of your mind, a, a little uh, closet. Stuff them in there and close the door. And then do a whole bunch of activity so that thing doesn't come back out again. Is that you today? I see a lot of head shaking. A lot of head shaking. Um, put all that activity aside and, you know what, just sit, forget about what you're thinking of, listen to the Word of God, and let God's Word minister to you. Because this section, especially this next section, is, is going to, I think, do a lot for you. Uh, Jesus says, there's a song called, Jesus Draw Me Close. Now, I have worship people in the audience, and if I try to sing it, they're probably going to put their fingers in their ear. But the words basically go like this. Jesus, draw me close, closer, Lord, to you. Let the world around me fade away. It's, you know, when, when I do the altar call at the end and I ask anyone if they want to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, one of the things I say to them is, forget about the people sitting next to you. Forget about being nervous when you walk up front. Don't even look at me. When you come up here and you, you give your heart to the Lord and you, you cry out to him with everything that you have, Everything else fades away. It's between you and him. The amazing thing about God is he's able to have a relationship with each person on the planet individually, even though there's so much noise around. How does he do it? I don't know. That's why he's God. But that's the truth. The third thing is that Mary has chosen that good part, Jesus says, and it will not be taken away. I told uh, last week I went to see, I try to visit different ministries uh, before the service actually starts, and I went to see the ushers, and I told them a story, and the story was a true story. It was last year, and it was, you know, sometime in the summer, and the service would be going on, and I would be a hall monitor, and I would double as an usher, or double as uh, watching the kids if they needed me, and I would sit outside and just sit on the desk and listen to some of it, but not all of it, because I was distracted. And as time went on, I listened to less and less and less of the Sunday message to the point where I just was a servant in the church and I didn't hear the messages. And I didn't really listen to all the CDs at, at, at times. And little by little, I withdrew from getting that, that message. And the story that I told was that last year when uh, we had a change of leadership here, it hit me hard. I didn't take it that well because my foundation was crumbling. And I thought things and I said things that maybe I shouldn't have said. And maybe I panicked a little bit. But again, it's because my foundation was starting to crumble. I wasn't, you know, there. I wasn't listening to the word. I wasn't getting grounded in it. An usher recently emailed me from that meeting and he really appreciated what I had to say. He said it really hit home. So the question I'm asking you today is, are you listening to service every Sunday? And if not, why not? Are you reading your Bible? If not, why not? Are you praying? 
Are you at least getting the message on the CD or the web if you don't hear it on Sunday? Are you spending time sitting at the Lord's feet? Are you in word, the word and prayer and fellowship? And if not, why not? This is for the guys out in the hallway if you're milling around. Are you listening? <laughs> Pay attention. I know they can hear me because I put a speaker out there. No, those guys are great. Look, see, they're opening the door, <laughs> giving you the thumbs up. <laughs> the irony is that if you're one of these people, chances are you're not hearing the service because you're not listening, right? That's the ironic thing about it. But I can't become the discipline police, you know? Everybody's responsible for their own walk. And as a matter of fact, if you try to get on people and, and push them, they could, they could make something up. Oh, yeah, I was listening to Matthew 12 today in my devotions. So there's no reason to get on people. It's an individual thing between you and the Lord. And only you guys know, you and the Lord know, what the truth is. So if you are listening to this, please take heart because it's for your own good. I learned my lesson. Four, lastly... Jesus broke down these traditional barriers at the time. The rule of the day was that only males could listen and sit at the feet of the rabbis and learn from them. But here Jesus will teach and preach the good news and build them up to anyone who will listen, who's open to it. And that's, that's us today. There's no excuse for us. You know, the barriers have been broken down. There's so much material, especially in this country, that there's no excuse for, not, for us not to get into the Word. By looking at what's going on in the Middle East... It's not getting better. It's just accelerating, and it's only been what? At this point, it's 12, 13 days. You know, it could get worse. So, you know, who knows? We're, we're being thrust into the end times. Everybody's got a nuke now, and the people who have a nuke, if they need money, they sell it to another rogue nation that, needs, that wants the nuke so they can get money for it. Everybody's got nukes, right? So the next section here, we get into what's popularly called the Lord's Prayer. In essence, it's a model prayer for all believers, not because of a formula of words or mystical powers or even repetition, which some have erroneously perverted. Not even because of a, a formula of body posture. When I became a new Christian, some people said to me, when you pray, you have to be out on your knees. You've got to get down on your knees, otherwise God's not going to hear you. That's legalism. The Bible talks about the people prayed in many ways. A lot of them prayed standing up. Some people paid, played, prayed with bowed heads. Some people prayed with their hands lifted to the air. You know, it, it doesn't matter what the body posture is. It's a position of the heart, not the body. The fact is that this is a model or standard for all believers' hearts to worship God directly. So let's go in. Verse 1. It says, And it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So the disciples come to Jesus as he's finishing worship, and they want to learn how to pray. They've also seen and learned and experienced, as some of them came from John. John who? John the Baptist. Remember, John had his band of men, his disciples, and he, some of them actually went with Jesus. It was the natural progression of things. John said that I must decrease and he must increase. So some of them from John went to Jesus. So the disciples here want to learn how to pray. Now Luke focuses on prayer. In the Gospel of Luke, we see prayer, prayer, prayer. It's drummed into us. And some things are just re worth repeating every Sunday. So much so that we actually changed how the Wednesday nights are at the Bible study at Pierre's. What we do is 
Now we have at least one Wednesday a month. We always pray, but we have one Wednesday a month where we have a corporate prayer. Or I'll open it up and then anybody who wants to pray who feels led prays. And however long it takes, it takes. I think it's a good thing. Verse 2. He said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our Father in heaven. This is a positional statement. You can't go any further until you understand the terms between us and him. He is the potter. We are the clay. Now, that's nothing unusual. We do that here on the earth. If you go before court, you got a speeding ticket, and you go before the judge, how do you address him? If you say to him, hey, man, what's up? Probably your court case won't go very well. You address him as your honor, right? If you go to a country where there's still a monarchy, royalty, how do you address people? Your excellence, your highness, your majesty, right? If you don't, and you don't address the king properly, you may get thrown into the jail. So there's no difference between what we see in the observable world and how God is. Actually, God deserves those titles much more than anybody with a title here. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. Even your name is sacred. Even the name that we address you by is a sacred name. Every aspect of you is pure. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah gets the vision, he gets the vision of, of God, and he says, he sees that the, the cherubim are on each side, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Not friendly, 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 or nice guy, nice guy, nice guy, but holy, holy, holy. He is set apart. He is perfect. There's a big difference between us and him. He is pure and he is holy, but he is also our father. He can be both. Some religions portray God as a hard taskmaster, overbearing, mean, but that's a misrepresentation. God gives us the choice. There will be a point in time for judgment. Hopefully none of us have to deal with that. If we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior and trust in his sacrifice on the cross, we pass through judgment. John 5.24 tells us that. We pass from death unto life, unto eternal life. So we can either worship him in adoration or obligation. Adoration now, if he's accepted him as our Lord and Savior. Obligation later, if we refuse and we rebel against him and, and uh, reject his way of salvation, there will be judgment for that. The second part of it, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom, we look forward to your righteous reign on this earth as in heaven. This world is a mess, people. I mean, it doesn't take somebody very smart to realize that we're, it's a mess, this world. Look at the United Nations, okay? Now, the United Nations is an organization that has a representative from pretty much every uh, you know, um, recognized country in the world. Imagine that, coming together in different places around the world trying to solve the world's problem. They can't do it. They're hamstrung. They can't stop war. They can't stop famine. They can't stop anything. So we can see that it's certainly not going to be man that's going to make a better place on the earth. Visualize world peace. It's not happening. It's not happening until the world comes back. So, Lord, we're waiting for your reign 
The way it is in heaven, the way you've got it set up, we're waiting for that here. We can't wait for that to happen, to realize your promises in Scripture. Our prayers must be in line with his character. Again, often we try to direct God to what we want him to do, but this is the model prayer. This is the, the model of what we should be looking at. Give us this day, day by day, our daily bread. Psalm 119.105 says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a day-by-day thing. Uh, The old lamps that they used to have, they'd have like a little uh, maybe clay or pottery type of device with uh, maybe some oil in it uh, and just some type of simple thing that they would light. And those little lamps didn't give off much light. It's a lamp to my feet. It's just enough so that as I walk around, I don't stumble and fall. But it's not a beacon where God says, okay, I give you a little bit and you're good for the next two months. Don't, don't call me until the end of the summer. We'll talk again, you know? Day by day, our daily bread, it's physical and spiritual. They go hand in hand. Just like the water and the manna in the desert with the children of Israel. This was a real-life lesson for the children of Israel to literally walk with God day by day. They expected every day that they woke up in the morning that that manna would rain down from heaven. And they would gather it up and they would be able to be satisfied. Same thing with the water. I really believe that remote villages in maybe Africa or Asia understand this concept far better than we do. Because in our country, in the United States, we have our daily bread and our daily needs met. But by what? Wegmans, city water and sewer, climate control, and Microsoft. Who needs God? We have everything we could possibly want here in this country. Do we really understand a daily walk with the Lord? All our needs are met. Often we don't understand a walk day by day with God until something very dear to us is removed out of our life. That's when we start to realize, I need God. What do I do? I need God. I need to walk with him. Verse 4, he says, And for, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This one's a heavy, as we saw in the parable of the unforgiving servant. There's a major tie of forgiveness and salvation. If you're taking notes, Matthew 6, 14 and Matthew 18, 23. Christ led in the example of forgiveness on the cross. When he was on the cross, he forgave us of our sins. And he expects us to do likewise with other people, with other human beings. Because if you think about your sins that put Christ on the cross... The little stupid things that people do to irritate you will never measure up, collectively, will never measure up to what Christ did for us. So they're petty in compared to what he did for us. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. We love him because he first loved us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God will not tempt us to sin. James 1.13 tells us that. God doesn't put out uh, an enticement to us and, and draw us in and then close the trap on us. He doesn't do that. The Bible is very clear about that. There are other things that cause us to sin. God tries to, to keep us from sin. He tries to use uh, bad situations to, uh, for a good thing. But he's also not the author of evil. And also... This, this prayer is saying, here, please, help us not to get ensnared and caught up in our own sin. Now, I want to go back to Matthew 6, because Matthew adds a little bit more than Luke does. He elaborates more. Uh, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 9. 
Jesus says, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. And then he says, uh, he goes into the prayer. But verses 5 and 6, these uh, religious leaders would, would pray for a pretense. They'd pray for a show. They would go and where everybody could see them, they'd start praying and, and looking all holy. And uh, people would be impressed by that. It was, it was more of a show. But I think the, the, the picture here is don't make any service or devotion to God a show or it ceases to be a service or devotion. It's the difference between being in, in God's business and being in the God business. They sound very similar, but they're worlds apart. Being in the God business is a show. It's, a, it's like a stage. It's a, there was a movie once that, I forget, Steve Martin was in it, and he was... He, some of you know what it was, and it was a show. It was a big show, you know. It was it was like showtime. It was, it was uh, entertainment. But we, that's not what we want to be. We want to be in God's business. We want to be doing what the Father has asked us to do. Jesus, from an early age, said, "Don't you know I'm about my Father's business?" And that's where we should be. In verse seven, this applies to the religious leaders, but also religion. This repetition. Um, this is what repetition prayers sound like to God. And this is not what God asked us to do. He says in this manner. This is the model for you. Not that you take this and you just continue repeating it, repeating it, and memorizing it. That's not what it's about. You know, if you continue to say the same thing to God, it's almost like from his perspective, if you memorize prayers and, and say them over and over again, from his perspective, it must be like this. Hi, Dad, how are you? 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 Could you imagine God sitting up there listening to that? He's probably like, hey, Gabriel, hit him in the head. Stop the record from skipping. You know? That's not what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus says, like the heathen do. The heathen do that. The pagans chanted incantations. It was a mantra. It was something that they did over and over again. It was, it was satanic. It was because they had false gods, and they didn't respond to the pagans. But they would figure the more they would say it, eventually they could get them motivated, and it didn't happen. Remember uh, the prophet Elijah when he was on the top of Mount Carmel with the 400 prophets of Baal? And, of course, their God was a false God. And they would cut themselves and they would, they would say it over and over again. And their gods don't answer them because there's no such thing as false gods. So true devotion to God should never re resemble that type of prayer. And verse 8, he says that your Father in heaven already knows uh, the things you need before you ask him. So I guess then the logical question people ask is, so why bother praying? He already knows what we need, right? Well, I think that, you know, Heather and I weren't planning to have my son, but we are so blessed by him. Uh, it's one of those things. And I think that God definitely wanted me to have a son or a child so that I could understand the relationship between parent and child. It's a relationship issue. I already know what my son wants. I see when the commercials come up for certain toys, his eyes light up, you know. <laughs> Or chocolate. He would eat chocolate every day if I let him. You know, I know what he wants, and, and I also know what he needs. But it's kind of neat. It's a relationship issue. I don't just wake up every morning and 
give him a toy and don't speak to him. Or give him a chocolate bar and say, here, take that for the day. You know, I love it when he asks me for stuff. It builds that relationship between us. I love to bless him, right? And then the last part is, Jesus says again, in this manner. Pray in this manner. Some have even taken this model and set an acronym for it. The acronym is ACTS, like the book of Acts, and it stands for adoration. We adore God first when we pray. Confession. We confess our sins because sin is a hindrance to good communication with our Father. T is for thanksgiving. We thank him. We should be thankful. Everyone in this room should be thankful for something. If nothing else, that you have a climate-controlled church, right? And nice seats. And supplication. (laughs) The wish list comes at the end. All the other good stuff should come first. So that's that acronym. Now going back to Luke, uh, verse 5, Luke 11, it says, And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. And my children are in bed with me. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So here's a, you know, you got to picture this in your mind. It's midnight. It's dark. There's no street lamps, no light coming in the windows, right? You bolt the doors. You get into bed with your kids. It was just the way they did it. It wasn't, they didn't have homes like we did. They would have a, a top, top like a platform type of bed, uh, nothing real exciting, and you would, all your kids and you would bed down for the night. You'd all sleep in the same bed. I don't know how anybody got a whole lot of sleep doing it that way, but... And often they would bring the animals in, and the animals would sleep on the... It was like a dirt floor that they would sleep on, right, for protection. And they would blow out the lamps, because the lamps provided the light for the home in the evening. Once the lamps were blown out, again, without street lights, it was pitch black. You couldn't see anything, so you had to go to bed. They would log off the computer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so basically what happened is everybody logs off their computer at night, right? What you have to do is you have to look at this in the reverse now. Somebody's knocking on the door at midnight, right? You have to do all this in the, rever- in the reverse. You have to grope in the dark now to find that lamp and light it. That's going to be a trick in itself. You know, stepping over your kids, stepping over the animals. Everybody's waking up. The guy don't want to get up. He's like, go away. It's midnight. The doors are shut. I'm not getting up. I don't care how much of a friend you are. But what happens here is uh, this is a picture of persistent for needs. Why does he get up? Because of the persistence, not because the guy's his friend. If you can't get a person to move to action, if you can get a person to move through action, excuse me, through persistence, how much more God of love that desires to bless his children? Persistence also develops habit and relationship. I want to read a quote from Philip Brooks. He says this, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his highest willingness. Persistence in prayer is not an attempt to change God's mind, but to get ourselves to the place where he can trust us with the answer. It's a pretty neat perspective, isn't it? Verse 9, And I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. The Greek tense for ask and seek and knock is not a one-type deal, one-shot deal. You knock on the door, 
All right, God's not answering, I'm done. No, that's not what it's about. It's a continual action. The tense in the Greek is a continual action. Continue to ask, continue to seek, continue to knock. It's that picture of per- persistence. Uh, continuation of prayer cultivates a relationship, just as continuation of a conversation does among humans. Hopefully we don't meet somebody for the first time and, you know, you hear that love at first sight, I'm in love, and you get married, right? You've got to talk to the person. You've got to get to know the person. You want to tell them about yourself. You want to hear about them. And that whole dating procedure, or procedure is probably a bad word, but that whole dating, that courting relationship is, is a way to build a relationship. Then you get to know somebody. You know them. I had this weird thought in my mind that if I got married, eventually we would run out of things to talk about and we'd be bored and just stare at each other. Come on, I'm the only one who's ever thought that. But I've been with Heather for 15 years and you know what? We just have more to talk about. We have more things to share. It's great. You you don't run out of things to talk about, Um, especially me. But ask, seek, and knock. Throw in abiding, and now you see that man has responsibility towards his creator. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord. There's opportunity. The Lord wants to speak to all of us. Seek him while he may be found. It's our responsibility. Verse 11. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Whatever you can get from humans, you can get that much more from God as your Father. Um, it's funny, he says, you being evil. He wasn't criticizing them. Hey, you evil disciples, you guys are no good. It's true, we are by nature, sinful human beings. We are evil. It's only by the grace of God that we can get into heaven because he's paved that way for us on the cross. So it wasn't an insult. It was a fact. Jesus spoke in fact. But So this, this sounds odd, I guess, to some people. You, won't your Father give, your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I could picture some people saying, the Holy Spirit, I asked for a Ferrari. What am I going to do with the Holy Spirit? What can the Holy Spirit do for me? Well, if you have to ask that question, then you definitely need to read the Bible more and pray more. But one is you're getting the most precious gift. You're getting God living in you. That's a promise that God made, that you would be sealed with the Holy Spirit. So you're getting a part of God residing in you. That's pretty amazing in itself. Two is the Holy Spirit knows what to pray when you don't. The Holy Spirit also acts as an intercessor. Romans 8.26, there's times that we just don't know what to say and we just... Go look up to God and go, I, just, I don't know what to say. Just, you're groaning. You know, you're, and then the Holy Spirit makes these utterances that, uh, that he intercedes for you. So he knows what to, what to get for you when you don't know. Other complimentary scriptures regarding prayer before we wrap it up. 1 Peter 3, 7. This is for the husbands. Peter says, Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them with understanding, meaning your wives, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. That's pretty amazing, husbands. And I've been there. Sometimes I, I think about that scripture if my prayer's not being answered. 
Am I treating my wife properly? So there's a prayer right there that hindered prayer because of the way a husband treats his wife. That should be convicting to all of us. Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18. One, one verse here. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's what I said before. Sin is a barrier to prayer. I think about when you tune in a radio station and it sounds good. And you go through certain areas and it's all scratchy and you can't hear the signal. Sin is like that interference. And it doesn't come from God, it comes from us. The more we sin, the more there's interference with prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, very simple. Paul says, pray without ceasing. It's a persistence. It's to overcome spiritual laziness. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And the most interesting one, John 15.7, I wanted to share or save for last, is Jesus says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. The interesting thing is scripture also says that it has to be in God's will. But the melding here is when you abide in God and you abide in the words and the words abide in us, then you become more in harmony with the way God thinks. So when you ask for something, it is going to be in his will because you and the Lord are going to be in harmony. You're not going to ask for things that are harmful to yourself or your family. You're not going to ask for things that are selfish. You're going to ask for things that you and the Lord are already in sync with. So I like that scripture. But... What this portion of scripture shows us is that prayer is not an art. It's not a memorization skill like you would memorize for a test. God doesn't grade us on fancy words or outward appearances. I remember as uh, maybe a believer for a few years, I was part of a ministry and we would have open prayer. Everybody would pray before we would start the ministry. And there was one guy who was a real, real new believer. And he uh, took me aside after the prayer was over and he said, Joe... He goes, I, 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 you got to teach me to pray like you guys. You guys have such really elaborate prayers. And I was like, bro, that's not what it's about. Just He didn't want to pray because he didn't feel that he could pray in a way that it would be acceptable to God's ears. And we, maybe we were doing something wrong. Maybe we were putting a little fancy things. Oh, ye Lord of the universe. You know, I don't know. And sometimes people do that. You speak in the old King James and... If you think that the Lord's like, oh, I really like that one, <laughs> you get an A+. Plus. It's nice. But, I, you know, I, I got a little convicted, and I was thinking, am I being really elaborate on pur purpose because there's other people that are listening? But that was an indictment on all of us at that prayer meeting because the new believers were afraid to pray. So it's not what that's what it's about. You know, just as home improvement stores can teach you to be a good electrician or plumber or tile layer with those how-to books, this portion of scripture is really a how-to regarding prayer, relationship with God, because that's what his goal is. His goal is to have a relationship with his children. And prayer can come in many forms. You can speak prayer. You can think prayer. You can, as you're, whatever, maybe doing an activity in your mind, you're talking to God, you're praying to him. Personal prayer, just you and him. Corporate prayer, pray with other believers. Uh, desperate prayer, oh God. You don't really say anything. You just keep saying, oh, God, help me. He hears that, too. Organized prayer. My sister had this ability to, she kept a prayer journal, and she would have, like, a book filled with what everybody needed in their prayer. And she would open it up when she would start to pray, and she'd go through the pages and pray for all these people. It was amazing. That, to me, is organized prayer, for lack of a better word. 
Uh, and prayer can come in many positions, kneeling down, laying down, before you go to bed at night, when you wake up in the morning, standing, prostrate, um, you know, head bowed, arms raised, driving in a car, let's see, responding lights and siren to a motor vehicle accident between a tractor trailer and a motorcycle. That's a good time to pray. Oh, Lord, hope it's not gruesome. Um, there's no formula. Prayer is as unique to us as God made us unique. That's what we have to remember. We're all different. We're all going to pray differently. I don't have pr- fancy prayers or marathon prayers. The Lord and I speak all day long as if I was on the cell phone with him. Or if I'm driving, if I'm walking, if I'm cutting the lawn, that's a great time to pray. It's like an hour to cut my lawn. Uh, and we just talk all day long. But I hope and pray that some of you have learned something new about prayer and how to have a better relationship with your Father in heaven through prayer. Let's pray. There's no-